Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, my next guest is Kamlesh Patel, also known as Daji among his followers. He is a spiritual leader, author, and the fourth in line of the Raja Yoga Masters in the Sahaj Marj system of spiritual practice. He authored the book, The Heartfulness Way with Joshua Pollock, and has been instrumental in the spread of the heartfulness practice throughout the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation today. Well, Dashi, it's wonderful to have you on my podcast. I appreciate that very much, and I thank you. And I was just saying you're in India, and I'm in California. Actually, before we actually started recording, we were talking about actually this vertigo that you've been having, but you were giving me this, uh, I guess it's a proverb from the Buddha's life about one of his uh, disciples was with him, and he said, correct me if I uh, say this incorrectly, but he said... uh, if I shoot you with an arrow, will it hurt? And he said, yes, Lord Buddha. And I guess he did fire the arrow. Is that correct? And then... Uh, no, he didn't fire it. This he did? No, no, no. Yeah. But I, I mean, the point was that actually when the second time he said, if I would fire the arrow, which would hurt worse, the first time or the second time? He said, um, actually the second time, because he was anticipating the pain he would feel, versus the first time where he didn't anticipate it. And we were talking about how it's actually oftentimes the fear of an event that is worse than the actual event itself for many people. Exactly. And that's what I had been going through as well. One vertigo was bad enough, second was terrible, third was horrible. And now I get dreams. I wake up (laughs) out of as if I am getting vertigo. And that's really, really scary. So fear of, you know, when we anticipate something, it's often worse than the actual episode. This preconditioning drives our lives all the time, see. When we are talking about compassion and uh, hatred and uh, lack of compassion, which is violence towards the other, or lack of empathy, heart full of apathy. These are all preconditioning. No one likes to be violent, but somehow something provokes them to become non-violent. The seeds, I mean, something provokes them to be violent. So what are these seeds that provokes certain actions? Some individuals become compassionate, kind, loving, while some individuals, they end up being violent. They end up becoming terrorists. They end up becoming dictators. These are extreme examples, but we do observe things in our day-to-day life, something in between. In office, somebody is so dominant, while some people you like to hang out with after hours as well, beyond office hours. So what is it that makes us, what is it that creates these conditions in our hearts? And uh, we respond to those likes and dislikes. Well, I think... 
one of the things is that um, many individuals have a trauma that they carry with them, especially from childhood. And because it is at an unconscious level, they actually don't know what is necessarily triggering them, I think. I do surely agree with you also. You see, the, the families uh, especially, I have observed, you see, I am a non-resident Indian, right? I spent most of my life in the United States. Uh, and now I'm spending time in India. I was born in India, actually. So I have the understanding of cultural differences between two great nations, uh, India and United States. Now, when we observe this childhood conditioning, where children are grown, they play around rich and poor, they all hang out together. Right. Now there is a bigger, wider and wider gap that I observe here. But when I do see, observe these children born to poor families, where childhood uh, memories of trauma and abuse is there, in their later age, they turn out to be more kind, more compassionate. This is just an observation. I am not an expert in psychology. But people who have not witnessed such trauma, they are not able to understand, very rarely if at all, they would understand such traumas that person actually go through in life, in their childhood or in their teenage periods, where they are abused as a child or abused as a teenager. And when they grow up, they tend to be more compassionate. Well, I certainly think that can happen. I think, though, that because they understand what pain is and they understand the nature of abuse and how it hurts them and affects them, they can be more empathetic or compassionate uh, to their abuser. But I think for a lot of people, especially younger children, is that they somehow blame themselves and they carry this trauma with them throughout their lives. And in fact, uh, it doesn't have to be poor people, actually. We think of trauma as sexual or physical abuse or uh, verbal abuse, but that can occur in wealthy families. And so you can have this, if you will, uh, trauma. And it's interesting because I think the greatest development of it is, is when it is variable in the sense you were talking about the fear of you're expecting something which makes it worse because you never know what's going to happen. And I think that's uh, very damaging because it's like a soldier who's been in a, uh, a war zone and comes back and has post-traumatic stress disorder and his sympathetic nervous system is chronically engaged because he never knows what is going to happen next. And I think this can uh, occur with children. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me because I had this narrow view of this because I was exposed more to our Indian uh, culture and Indian scenario. And I worked in United States for many years, but the neighborhoods I worked were also very, I would say, relatively at a disadvantage. Most of my work as a pharmacist was in Brooklyn. 
uh, almost 25 to 30 years of my pharmacy career was spent in Brooklyn. So my experience, though I worked, I worked almost 14 hours every single day in in the pharmacies, you see. So I'm glad you brought this to me that even wealthier families, children also can uh, face trauma and abuse and it can be lasting. Now my my uh, fundamental thing is how to help them heal. See, in heartfulness practices, we offer special processes whereby this uh, settling of impressions, conditioning, uh, or the cognitive factors that um, get remains buried in our subconscious as what we call cognates, or you might like to say they are impressions buried within. And when they come to surface of the mind, it recreates that situation. For example, if a person is threatened in the war zone, and he may have forgotten about it altogether, but then later on they are watching a movie, and it gets revived all of a sudden, and that scene is recreated. And the inner impression, which was actually buried in your subconscious mind, now resurfaces. The, anything can trigger such uh, cognates, which were buried, they come to the surface. Through this particular process in heartfulness way, um, we are able to iron out those creases. We are able to bring them to the surface without actually creating that original scenario and get it removed from the system. And one can actually feel also that, yes, now the burden that I was carrying is no more. And to my understanding how that happens, Dr. Doty, I am still baffled because yoga or yogic science I think it's more experiential. Your own experience is a proof. But can I show it on a machine or MRI or a CT scan or something? It's beyond all this, you see. It is, it is not measurable. Of course, there are certain things you can measure, like when you become so peaceful. You can measure them at slowing down of those you know, the EEG waves and etc., etc. But to capture those emotions, like you become more empathetic, you become more loving, how are you going to measure it? It's just, I, I don't know if there is a way to measure it. Well, actually, there is. Uh, one actually can be EEG, but these are very sophisticated. And the other is we can use what's called functional MRI, where we can actually look at those areas of the brain associated, as an example, with um, memory or those areas of the brain that are associated with the fear response or those areas of the brain associated with the reward center. And when you do a functional MRI, you can actually show increase or decrease in metabolism in these different areas. And of course, when those areas are active, is you get increased uh, metabolism. So it's actually quite interesting. We're learning uh, actually a fair amount 
about assessing emotional states. And when you talked about increasing or, or decreasing or slowing your EEG, actually there are some meditation practitioners who can actually, they're so agile or adept at doing it in a meditative state that they can actually go from 25% empathy to 50% to 75%. And the interesting thing is as they get more empathic or to another's emotional state, uh, as an example for pain, they are actually then suffering themselves. Uh, but you can actually watch them increase and decrease this uh, actually at will. Well, uh, I very impressed with your uh, insight into specific parts of the brain that you have revealed to me uh, where compassion, where fear factors, where uh, certain brain parts which responds to certain emotions and where metabolism either increases or decreases depending upon the response. This is something new that I have learned from you today. And uh, we would like to, I think uh, we can, I think do a very good research on, on this because we with heartfulness have identified uh, the yogic chakras associated with emotions. And when the cleansing is done on, those, on that particular uh, uh, chakra, then the emotions related to that chakra is either increased or decreased. I, I think we can target a research, for example, we can just focus on five main chakras. One is heart, Second is the uh, Atma Chakra or the Soul Chakra. Third is the Fire Point or the Fire Chakra, Water Chakra and the Air. Now each one has a balancing quality. For example, uh, Fourth Chakra which is Water Chakra. It has the quality of fear and courage. For example, if someone is really so fearful and if you clean this chakra through yogic transmission, we should be able to measure the lessening of the fear factor. Now, I was always perplexed, how am I going to measure it? But you have shown the way and I think we can really do that. Now, the third chakra is, uh, is endowed with these two opposites of love and anger, compassion and anger. The, 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 the second chakra, which we talked, I uh, mentioned to you, it's Atma Chakra, it has a very special quality of when you're meditating and you arrive at this chakra, you find uh, within you extraordinary peace that you have never felt before. And you can't explain what is this peace. At the same time, those who don't have that, extraordinary level of uh, experience of peace. And those who have constantly experienced its opposite, the restlessness, constant restlessness. I think that also can be measured by working on the second chakra. So I think we can target these specific chakras uh, with emotional uh, factors that can be measured as per your uh, 
I think, parameters that you have shared with us. Now, in 1976 or no, 1977, in that was the second year of my uh, starting the meditation actually, and then I had felt that these five chakras, especially, uh, which are five elements, panchabhutas, they call it, uh, five basic elements. They also correspond to this. Uh, EKG probes, PQRST. I think uh, in one of our conversations, I did mention briefly on that, that uh, our moods, at the moment of having this, uh, observing this heart pain, generally when there's a pain in the heart, we say, I'm getting a heart attack. But if we go a little deeper into it, and see which mood had triggered it. Perhaps that person was overwhelmed by the, oh, where am I going to get my next check? A financial pressure and I don't have money to pay rent. And so much of tension arises in, within that creates frustration. Or you become so restless because of the broken relation with your spouse and where you become very angry at that moment that, oh, how can he or she do that to me? My partner is not behaving well. And you brood over such things and that triggers some heart pain. Or you are afraid, you become so fearful about something and you lose courage. So this thing, I think, can be measured with the parameters you have shared. And when we psychoanalyze a person after the treatment from the hospital, we ask fundamental question. What was it that you felt? What is it that triggered? Were you angry? Were you afraid? Were you tensed because of something? Were you restless just without any reason? And the trainer, like you know Naren Kini and Men Sanjay, you know, you know Anirudh and all those guys, you just send them the photographs of the patient, of course, with their privacy, uh, keeping intact confidentiality. They need not know the moods under which this heart attack happened. But they can tell you that out of five, which chakras were heavier or were compromised? Suppose if uh, Kini says, Naren Kini says that um, by looking at the photo when I meditate on this person's persona, I feel that the fourth chakra is affected. That means he has a lot of fear. Now you keep a blind study. Don't share this with Kini. What you have found from psychoanalysis that under what circumstances, how was this patient feeling? Was he afraid? And when he says, yes, I was afraid, and Kini's observation that the fourth chakra was affected, that will tell it. And once we have this data of hundreds of patients or thousands of patients, then we can say, okay, is there similarity? Let us see, if this chakra is affected, fourth, which is endowed with fear and courage, and the patient says, I was afraid, and on PQRST, if you see elongation of a particular part, 
So then we are able to now go further and say, okay, fear observed by the trainer like Kinney, then the uh, patient's psychoanalysis, and third, related deviation in PQRST. I think these three things can uh, confirm our observations. And then we can uh, help them clean this or remove the, the impressions because um, certain impressions that we do get. For example, if I'm totally all the time thinking I don't have money or all the time I'm thinking, oh, my partner betrayed me all the time and you're missing out on that person. It actually affects a very specific chakra. And these emotions, they gravitate in a very natural way at a particular chakra. Right? So we, we can try to remove those gravitate or the impressions which are accumulating at one particular chakra and solve the problem once and for all. Well, you know, I think there may be different language uh, in the Western world to define these things, but I think you're right. There's a great deal of evidence that the amount of stress or anxiety or fear someone has has a significant impact on their physiology. And of course, if you attribute that to disruption of a particular chakra, of course, that can lead you to make certain decisions about how best to help them. It's interesting, what we do know is, as an example, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called broken heart syndrome. And, well, this was first described in Japan, but it's an interesting phenomenon. What would happen is if somebody went through a very stressful breakup, then it caused the release of certain chemicals in your body that then cause your arteries of your heart to go into spasm, and then you can actually uh, suddenly die. And many of these people have had autopsies which show no evidence of heart disease. And it's just the nature of a profound stress. And we know that when people are under great stress, it has a huge negative effect on their physiology. Now, of course, the other side of this is if you look at people who are calm in their mind, if you look at people who are compassionate, it's really quite different. And you were talking about the effects on the uh, EKG. As an example, if somebody is actually very stressed, there's something called heart rate variability or interbeat variability, which actually uh, stays the same. But in fact, when you're in that state, it has the highest potential for sudden cardiac death. While if you actually have an increase in heart rate variability, this actually uh, is associated with a very positive effect, and you are much, much less likely to uh, have a heart attack. And in fact, any time when you're calm within, any time when you demonstrate that your capacity for compassion and caring, it has a very, very uh, significant positive impact uh, on your physiology and also on your brain, because when you're kind, when you're compassionate, the parts of your brain associated with reward and pleasure are actually activated. And in fact, we know that when you are in this state, 
it actually increases your longevity. You know, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, because of course, heartfulness is a English term, but what are the origins of heartfulness practice? Uh, you mentioned yogic transmission, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that for listeners who may not be familiar with the Heartfulness Institute or those practices. Well, this is a meditation done on the heart itself. And uh, the focal point of our attention is the heart. We imagine that the divine light or the love or compassion, kindness is bubbling, is infusing in my heart. I'm becoming more and more divine. Divine means being more compassionate. Divine to me means more loving, more kind, and less of the other, you know, its opposites. And when I meditate with this, all alone, it has already an extraordinary impact on my health, my moods, all, everything, at physical, mental, spiritual, at all level, it affects us. And this is a palpable impact. You just do this for 10, 15 minutes is great enough. You just close your eyes and be with your uh, true nature. But when we do the same thing with added element we call yogic transmission, it has a, I would say, incremental impact which can baffle you, how in the world this yogic transmission works. We have measured, uh, Dr. Doty, that we had, let us say, 10 individuals with this EEG probe who meditates like a placebo, the way you want it. You can meditate on the Agya Chakra in the forehead, or you may meditate on an external thing like candle and measure the EEG of such individuals. You can, you can have 10 individuals like that. You can have 10 individuals who, whom you would like to say, okay, you meditate on the heart, on compassion, on love, on kindness, you know, all those good things. And uh, let's measure the EEG of those 10 individuals. Now, another set of 10 individuals who may have never meditated in their lives, but same as the second group that meditate on the presence of divine qualities, human qualities, love, kindness, compassion, you know, empathy. And add on top of that yogic transmission or pranahuti. In Sanskrit word is pranahuti. And uh, you will see a magical difference between these three EEGs that you measure. The delta wave will appear so fast with yogic transmission, even if you are a meditator for the first time in your life. Within five minutes, I tell you, 90% of meditators, you will see this uh, delta wave coming up within five minutes. And you know, delta wave comes after half hour of struggle of going into sleep. Right? Your deep sleep state comes so late, even when you are trying to sleep, it comes much later, even when you have gone into sleep. 
But through this heartfulness way of meditation, delta wave comes just within five minutes. That also worth noting here, that is, though this delta wave comes within five minutes, you're not sleeping, you're not in a deep sleep state. But delta wave comes, you're fully aware. And this, in our ancient literature, they call as a fourth level of consciousness. Science talks about our ordinary consciousness when we are awake. Second is a dream state. And third is deep sleep state. And there are variations between these three. I mean, you can have multiple things going on there. But the fourth state mentioned in our ancient Eastern literature is this, where you have the delta wave. You experience the total relaxation as if you are in deep sleep, but you are fully aware. And the master meditators are someone's who have the fifth level of consciousness. They maintain this delta wave also, not just during the meditation with yogic transmission, but even while working, you are performing a surgery, for example, or you are having a nice dinner, or you are in, in, in your bedroom with your, with your loved ones, then too you will have this uh, very nice, pleasant feeling in your heart. Uh, soothing effect of this delta wave will continue in this fifth state of consciousness. So, to me, this uh, yogic transmission helps us transcend all sorts of uh, conscious, the states of consciousness that we all have heard so far. If you have attained one level of consciousness and in your second state of meditation, it will change and it will constantly go on evolving at a consciousness level. And that's to me, is the greatest adventure to how we move within our own consciousness and experience it. Let me ask you, you know, I was talking to you about the heartfulness, but maybe you can tell us the origin of that practice where it arose in India. And I think uh, the uh, founder of heartfulness was Lalaji. Is that correct? That's correct, sir. And, and so maybe you can tell me a little bit about him and what, if you will, enlightened him in terms of this practice or the actual origin of it and how this led to actually the formal development of the Heartfulness uh, Institute. And did this arise then from a yogic Vedanta practice or what was the actual origin of it? Well, it was Lalaji who reinvented it sometime in 1880, when he was uh, merely seven, eight years of age. Uh, he was born in 1873. And as a child, when he felt that tremendous, um, this grace, as you might like to call, was descending over him, and he felt that, what is this extraordinary power that I'm receiving? I'm melting in it. And he started using it on his friends and other people on his street. And they found great benefit out of it. And 
Then he started using the same technique of transmitting that essence to people in his you know, district, what we call counties in the United States. And that's how it started. And one of his disciples, he entrusted and he said, now you uh, spread this knowledge of transmission. And in his uh, transcendental state, he was able to find the actual practice that was almost 12,000 years. It goes back 12,000 years. Uh, one sage was able to practice and teach the, uh, you know, the interested people in this uh, field of spirituality. But then <clears throat> this knowledge was lost. And so that he, this knowledge is not lost, he has started training thousands of people across the globe. They can do the same work. They can also transmit, like uh, as I was just mentioning to you, those, the trainers like um, Naren Kini is there, Sanjay is there, and the, there are almost 15,000 trainers we have throughout the globe. And they are able to do the work exactly like what Buddha would have done during his lifetime. So we have walking Buddhas walking on the planet and they can transmit and uh, please don't take my words for granted. You can challenge these people and say, see if you can change the state of my consciousness in less than half hour. It is possible. No, I, I, I know it is, actually. So was he educated at all, or was this just something learned, or he intuitively understood? I think when he experienced the first dose of grace descending from above, it was more intuitive and experiential. See? He experienced it, and then intuitively later on uh, connected it with methods how to harvest this grace, harvest this transmission, uh, and channelize it to others. For example, even if I say, Dr. Doty, let's transmit, and some of the listeners also might also say, okay, let's all transmit and see what happens. But then you would not know what this transmission is, how to do it, from which chakra uh, it has to be followed and what to do. So this training is provided by the Heartfulness Institute. Though the organization came into being in 1945, the founder was Babuji, and then he did make some amendments, some changes to facilitate people like us, doctors, pharmacists, engineers, farmers, you know, barbers, you name them, janitors, uh, ladies and gents and boys and girls all across the globe of all ages. Of course, minimum age prescribed is 15. So that, you know, the modern man can practice it half hour in the morning, few minutes in the evening and one or two minutes at night time. And he prescribed so that it becomes easier for us to practice. You don't have to leave your home, you don't have to leave your job, you don't have to fall at any guru's feet, you don't have to give any money also. You know, he used to say, you know, when my master Babuji was visiting Washington DC once, and uh, some Mr. Peters came to him to see him, he was a doctor like you, and he said, Babuji, 
there are two interesting conversations happened then. She said, how much do you charge for giving me liberation? So he was amused and he gave $50 to him and he said, and then Babuji gently pushed the $50 back to him and he says, God is not for sale. <laughs> and if you could buy God, how much would you pay? And if you could, if you could pay me, why do you need God? That was a beautiful argument and I love it so much. And the second question this Dr. Peters asked was, can you show me God? The Babaji replied, suppose I show you God. How will you know it's God? So the realization unless and until it had happens within me, outwards, outer experiences, even of Buddha or Lord Jesus or of Krishna are of no use to me. I have to experience, I have to realize, just because so-and-so experience God, it can inspire me, but that is not good enough for me. It only shows that, yes, it's possible and you can also try it. But to say, can you show me God, it's a fool's question. So this with a profound philosophy of this kind and belief of such as high order, heartfulness is here not to make money. It solely thrives on volunteer work across the globe. Out of the love to serve the Lord, we all serve each other. So that's heartfulness. No, that's beautiful. It's interesting how there are a lot of religions that require you to pay. Some of them may be to learn different types of meditative practices, uh, some to just support the workings of the organization. Frankly, some to support the ego and greed of the person in charge, sadly. Well, I have known people. I mean, there is so much of discrimination, even in the world of so-called spirituality, where I would say such gurus have made these yogic practices as their business. You see, yogic practices by nature are supposed to be based on compassion, based on love, not to um, decrease the harmony in others' heart. Whenever we take away something from someone, you are creating restlessness, discord. Imagine a poor man wanting to learn meditation and you are taking away $50, which he would have otherwise used in buying something for the family. So you are creating a discord. You're not creating world of compassion and love. And they have no idea. I mean, some of these gurus in India, I would not like to name them, but you already know them so well. They, they are floating in millions and millions and millions, and they don't know what to do with it. It's an interesting paradox because uh, you see some of them actually doing good works and engaging people to do a lot of volunteer activities, but they are also surrounded by opulence. And uh, it's an interesting contrast. In fact, I, uh, as you know, I know a number of different gurus or priests or uh, swamis or... Um, yes monks, and I'm very blessed to do that. But that being said, I 
I know, know a number who their ego is larger than mine as a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> May good Lord. Okay. Yes. Yes, and 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 it's surprising, of course, because uh, at least my own belief is that you should be above that, and you should be a light of compassion that is selfless and not driven by your ego for position, power, wealth, but that you are servant. But that being said, and I was having a conversation with the Dalai Lama about this, uh, and his statement was, well, are they doing good and helping people? And I said, well, seemingly so. And he said, so, so why does that matter then? And then he said to me, it only matters if you believe in karma because your intention is important. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and you know this, when you do mention about Dalai Lama, His Holiness, heart flows with love because of many, many reasons, not just because of who he is, but under what circumstances he came out from his motherland. And to me, I don't mind personally speaking, in my own personal capacities, I don't mind financing. I don't mind giving the people of his land and his people some freedom so that they can lead a free life, life of freedom, see. Um, coming back to this idea of compassion, to me, there are two words that stand out opposing compassion is passion and condemnation. I've seen that whenever, even in my life as a businessman, when you show little love, compassion towards your employees, and so, sir, I cannot come today because my wife is not well. I say, okay, stay put, stay home. They don't expect this answer, even though later on they say, sir, I lied to you. <laughs> so they feel later on more respectful towards you, that let me not lie to Mr. Patel, <laughs> they, because he's going to say yes. So they stop lying. Another scenario, even when I caught them stealing money, you know, at the, in a pharmacy, independent pharmacy business, where retail pharmacies, they're stealing is number one problem we have from through employees. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, even when you catch them, I mean, and you interrogate them, they feel really threatened after that, who will hire them if I fire them, see. But I tell them, look, you must have done this out of some need. You took only $20. If you wanted more, you should have told me, I would have given you 50. But don't do this next time. You need it, you tell me, but don't steal money. That changes when we saw such level of understanding, their heart melts. Some people have seen this, this the cry in front of you and say, uh, Mr. Patel, I'm sorry I did this. I will never do this again. Please don't fire me. I say, I have no intentions of firing you. I change you and somebody else will come. We'll also do the same thing, perhaps. But I would like you to know, you stay with me, but don't do this. 
you get more respect out of these people. You have now a loyal employee with you. And you know, Dr. Doty, my pharmacies are still going on in the United States. And I'm here in India. I haven't gone back in the last God knows 15 years doing business. It's gone. But these are the people. They are running the business. We have been together for 30 years. They're loyal. They know that we're not going to fire them. It's like a family business with us. And we have almost 12 drugstores in New York City area. And now my sons have taken over and they have in every little town under the name of Medley. Um, they are doing a different sort of business actually. Mine was a different retail business. They also do a retail business, but of a different league altogether. And I can't understand how they operate either. But this fundamental nature of respecting others, especially people who help you, uh, has to be there. Passion is where you take the advantage of other person. In passion, you are sacrificing the other person. While in compassion, one tends to sacrifice oneself for the sake of other. And when this nature, when we talk of uh, passion and condemnation, you condemn others, you take advantage of others, you take, you are being disrespectful towards others. Same thing happens to passion, where through in passion, you take advantage of the poor woman and rape out of passion. Taking advantage of the other. Condemnation makes you lose respect. And they also don't respect you afterwards. In compassion, I think we are able to create a better society. It's a beginning. Compassion is the beginning. And then it escalates into affection, liking each other, love, and ultimately reverence for, towards each other. See, when I revere you as Dr. Doty and the divinity that dwells within you, and I bow before that divinity with admiration. And when everybody is doing that, it becomes a Sangha. Lord Buddha called it a Sangha, Satsangha, Mahasangha. Becomes, it becomes greater and greater egregore. Right? And when many such individuals, like-minded, creating an egregore of spiritual vibrations of harmony, compassion, consciousness will shift. And it is when this consciousness shifts, the inner environment will change. And that's when the genetic mutation can happen and human beings can again think of a next level of evolution. Are you familiar with uh, what's called uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? <laughs> yes, yes. Express, tell me more, so we all can understand from your viewpoint why you brought this up. Well, in some ways you're talking about evolving consciousness and spirituality. And, you know, one of the challenges, of course, is that 
when one is uh, struggling to survive, whether it's for food or shelter or security, you have very little time to concentrate on self-actualization or other aspects of your spiritual growth because you are really focused on just surviving. Now, certainly that's not to say that the poor don't have a spiritual practice, but when that consumes, uh, uh, trying to stay alive consumes almost 24 hours a day, it's very hard to be there. Now, perhaps in India, it's somewhat different because oftentimes the poorest of the poor are very spiritual or religious. In the Western society, that's not as prevalent, I, I, I don't think. But my point is that as we evolve and raise our level of consciousness, I think when that occurs, you begin to see yourself and others. And when you look out and see you looking back at you, it makes you a much more kind and thoughtful person. Because unless you're selfless towards yourself, you're only hurting yourself. Well said. I was very intrigued once when I read this book by Dr. Bruce Lipton. On, and he mentions about epigenetic changes, how the environment uh, makes these epigenetic changes. And epigenetic changes leads ultimately to mutations. You see. And our inner environment, for example, he cites example of a child conceived in troubled families versus child conceived in well-to-do harmonious families their physical development, emotional development, and these cognitive uh, developments are different. And they have studied, I think, over a period of time and seeing the anatomy of the brain also. And it was so overwhelmingly, I mean, I was so touched by that observation that families or mother has to be always on the fight or flight mode in sympathomimetic mode where the blood would rush to your limbs more than your visceral organs. The same neurotransmitters would cross your placenta barriers and will also affect the embryo within. And they would also have this um, neuro, they would share the neurotransmitters and their limbs will also be unusually longer than the parents at the cost of visceral development. They'll have poor digestive system, poor lung functions, and other things. Most importantly, he says, this frontal lobe development in such children where blood supply is restricted because of this fight or flight mode all the time. And the hind brain, which is a reptilian brain, develops more because it is more impulsive. Well, and the contrary observations where families, you know, where there's harmony, peace, development is of a different nature, it's more balanced. So based on that, I thought, you know, if we can change this consciousness fundamentally from within, 
at very basic level, from spiritual level, that will affect our emotional level, that will affect our physiological level, that will affect our physical level, see. So I thought that if we can create that spiritual environment within oneself, that will have everlasting impact, constantly changing, uh, upgrading our, you know, versions all the time. And that's what I call agricore um, of human beings, like-minded people, when there's a, when they, when such consciously living individuals reaches a critical mass, I think that will trigger this uh, evolution or the mutation. No, I think that's true. I don't think there's any question that you can genetically transmit or create the um, epigenetic environment to transmit your own traumas in some way to your children. And I think there's a lot of evidence of that with the effects that you've already uh, described. And of course, it's very unfortunate. I think, as you were saying, you can be taught, if you will, uh, these attributes of compassion, of gentleness, of forgiveness. And when you can elevate your consciousness in that fashion, then that changes everything. It changes not only the fetus in a very positive way, but it also affects the environment around you. From my own experience, I found that when I changed my attitude from being angry or hostile or a feeling, a sense of despair or hopelessness, people responded to me in one way. And once I was able to open my heart and look at the world through the lens of compassion and gentleness and acceptance, then that changed everything in a positive way, but it also changed how people responded to me. I, I love this. I love this how, you know, often these individuals ask me, Mr. Patel, you've been meditating so long, you closed your eyes. How does it benefit the universe? <laughs> I say it may not benefit the universe, at least it's benefiting me. And then I, I do tell them, look, when you, when, you, when you earn money, how does it benefit the universe? It benefits you, so that you don't become a parasite on somebody else. And when you have something, you can share it with the world. I'm creating less trouble when I'm at peace. And when I'm more loving, I'm able to share it. So isn't this a wonderful thing that, you know, we love each other? And um, through this, uh, I think, we can be contagious enough to spread compassion, love. You know? And that will bring so much of peace in the world, see? Then we don't have to have United Nations after that, see? <laughs> the role, you don't need United Nations or any of these organizations afterward when we become awakened society. Well, I, I think that's absolutely correct. You know, the sad thing, though, is that uh, there are many individuals, though, who are greedy, want power, want position. As an example, there are plenty of resources for everyone. There's, frankly, I don't believe there should be any child who is hungry. If you look at how much 
as an example, the United States spends on um, their military. It's, I think, six or seven times more than the other nine industrialized countries in the world. And I think it, there was a number, I think it was something like, if you took seven days of the military budget, you could wipe out homelessness uh, and poverty. Another uh, week would allow everyone to have free health care. Another week would allow free education. And the thing is, who are we fighting in all of this? In some ways, we're only fighting ourselves because we project our own fears on other countries uh, versus focusing on our self-improvement. Uh, it's so been wonderful, Dr. Doty. Let's meet again. We can have, I'll send you some questions uh, so that we can discuss more about this research project. And uh, you can share the results of the same research with the listeners and also share the progress on our research to, with them so that you know they can also give us some feedback and say, okay, let's do research in this arena. And that will be a wonderful, I think, all our listeners also can participate in the research work. No, that would be wonderful. I certainly appreciate you taking the time. And maybe you could leave our listeners uh, with a, uh, a thought that can help them moving forward. Well, the world is looking forward to peace, universal peace. To my heart, unless I am at peace, the world can never be at peace. If I am not at peace, my family cannot be at peace. If my family cannot be at peace, my community can never be at peace. Idea is, let's all begin with the self and the family. Rest will happen on its own. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Thank you.